Hey everyone, welcome again to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about films off of the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Best Horror Movies of All Time list. I think after 15 or so episodes, I've finally gotten that down to something that makes sense. You did it. Yes. <laughs> My <laughs> name's Clay, and with me is Amanda. Amanda, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. And we have a special guest with us this week, because the movie we're talking about, I didn't... <laughs> I think between at least between Amanda and myself, uh, the, it, it has the potential to just turn into an hour to an hour and a half, or arguably anywhere from an hour to two hours, depending on how much we're feeling it. Uh, <laughs> just saying great things about this movie, so I wanted to put a little bit of spice in here. Although I, it's not exactly like our guest doesn't enjoy the movie and is going to hit he us back hates on this, it. but <laughs> it is true. Uh, but uh, uh, a friend of mine, Tony McMillan, he's a uh, writer and artist, and he has a uh, comic book that he writes called Serious Creatures, which is a fictionalized story about the special effects movie and movie special effects industry in the 1980s. So it's like right in the pocket of the, the era of the movie we're talking about today. Tony, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's nice to be on the, the podcast. I love the show. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for being here. Yeah, we're glad you're with us. Thank you. And the movie we are talking about is 1982's John Carpenter's The Thing, which, uh, I mean, we could probably pack it in when we're done with this, because I don't know if there's much to talk <laughs> about outside of this, because we've hit the apex. But the uh, the number <laughs> on the list, on the, the rotten, uh, sorry, the number, <laughs> the thing's number on this list is 138. Absurd. It has an... 84% yeah. Rotten Tomatoes score with an 89% adjusted score. Now, um, you've obviously both seen this. I've seen this. When uh, Tony, what was your first experience with The Thing? That sounded weird, but <laughs> you know it, what it, I mean. Well, it involved my mom, which is even weirder. Um, <laughs> I actually think that um, my mom, when I was like maybe nine or ten, she knew like Alien and Aliens. She was, I was like, what else is like like this? And and even though it hadn't hit its resurgence yet, she was like, oh, the thing is just is uh, if you like Alien, you're like the thing. Kurt Russell's in mm. it, and I because I think I saw Big Trouble in Little China before that, and so I knew who Kurt Russell was. I was like, cool. And I remember watching it on VHS and just. It, it blowing my mind as a little kid like it was just so cool and it became in, in my i didn't realize it was uh sort of uh not a it wasn't a big success at first i just thought it was like up there in the pantheon in my mind of alien and predator and all these great sci-fi horror films and of course it is but um and that was you know i, I was born in 81 so this is right in like 88 89 1990 well it's uh, it's interesting because 1982 is actually uh you said that it, it wasn't very well received 1982 was a good year for movies that nobody liked at the time yeah because you've yeah. got uh blade runner you've got the thing you've got dark crystal you've got tron uh um, oh, wow conan conan the barbarian although that was pretty popular at the time but there's it was a uh, the king of comedy it's it's a lot of really interesting movies came year. out that year. Halloween three is nineteen eighty two, so it's it, yeah. <laughs> I'm with well, you on I mean, that one, Amanda. Like, <laughs> I I don't disagree, but it's it is one of those movies where it tanked at the time, but now everybody seems to love it. It's down. It's found an audience, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Amanda, what about yourself? Um, I had in some ways the opposite experience that Tony did, and in some ways a very similar one because. I didn't see the thing until I was in my, I think I was, I was 
like dating Greg already, like with, with, with my husband. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he, and maybe even you or, or some combination of our goofy group of friends, um, are, are the ones who sort of pushed this movie upon me. Um, <laughs> and I remember seeing it and like, I obviously love horror movies. And when I watched it for the first time, I was like, I, I had that same feeling Tony did where I just sort of assumed it was up there in, in the, in the pantheon and that I had had this huge, blind spot my whole life where I just didn't know about this movie that everyone knew and everyone knew was amazing and loved. And it wasn't mm. until much later that I found out that it kind of is, is maybe now you wouldn't call it a cult classic, but it was for a long time. It was sort of like a niche thing. Yeah. It's definitely, I think moved from cult classic status to just regular classic. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> But the, uh, it's interesting how I, – I don't know exactly how you can track that change, um, but it, 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 it feels like it was, it's been fairly recent, like with maybe within the past 10 years or so, where the thing has really uh, – I don't know if it's, if it's just people of like the, uh, the, the tail end – I guess the tail end or tail begin – the oldest group of millennials – and mm. the youngest group of the generation before that were right in the pocket for this kind of movie. And as they got older, then that's, that started becoming a movie that people talked about more. I don't know. I don't know how this stuff works, but it does. Uh, John Carpenter across the board seems to be someone who has only really started to get recognition that he deserves within the past 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And it's funny now, like his biggest imprint on the on on people, it seems to be his music style, actually, in a lot of ways. Right. Like it's like it's I mean, you you done some synth scores for your Batman show, which have a little bit of Carpenter in them. His imprint, his thumbprint is so big on that. And it's such a weird, small part of what he does. But like, it's unavoidable. And um, I think you're right. I think it goes hand in hand. John Carpenter and the thing kind of being elevated to uh, mainstream acceptance it's it's been in tandem and it's in a way it's, it's his biggest failure and his biggest success all in one right it's and it's i would love to know how he feels about this movie and his career in general seeing as this movie essentially from what i know anyway um basically broke him uh really? mentally when it came to movie making because yeah because he thought this was going to be his big breakthrough movie and it just it just did not go well at all and after that he really soured on on hollywood and and movie making in general um and uh he never re he's always been kind of a curmudgeon but it feels like after 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 the thing he kind of never really recovered from it but yeah i, went, I wonder if there's um, been some guess, vindication now for him where he's like ha see I was right. It <laughs> right. is the best movie. Right. Yeah. I feel like it was his Pinkerton, man, you know, like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> in a weird way. That's, but yeah, I also wonder, yeah, his whole career to directory was thrown off because of it. And I always wonder, it's gotta be so bittersweet because I'm sure he was proud of it and is proud of it, but it took everyone else so many years to follow up. And now his career is, I mean, he can never go back in time and, and have the opportunities he would have had if this was a success. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, we should uh, finish the paperwork before we can jump into the movie <laughs> proper. So we'll take a quick break, and then we will jump into the John Carpenter's The Thing. Mayday. Mayday. Silent nearly 
The Thing, directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster, based on the short story by, uh, the short story is called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David, Gary from Gary's Old Town Tavern, a couple of other (laughs) Hey That Guys, and no women. (laughs) None. Amanda, would you like to tell us what happens in this movie? I would love to. In remote Antarctica a group of American research scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take in the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. A resourceful helicopter pilot and the camp doctor lead the camp crew in a desperate, gory battle against the vicious creature before it picks them all off one by one. Mm -hmm. That sums it up. So some things you will find in this movie include oscillating workplace power dynamics, Mm -hmm. cinema's single greatest defibrillator scene. It's a long list, but this one is probably at the top. (laughs) (laughs) Baffling nose rings on older men. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Carpenter sound alike music in a film directed by John Carpenter. Acing the blood test while failing the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. And questionable dog parenting questionable dog parenting (laughs) full credit for all of those goes to tony thank you thank you thank you tony for supplying those for us this week questionable dog parenting Um, is definitely a high on the list of my my all-time favorites of these that we've that we've rounded up yeah (laughs) i'm gonna say it's still under the same tent so we're still we have not fallen off (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah I actually, I was thinking something similar to that, and I was like, "Is is husbandry the right word?" That's <laughs> animal right husbandry. Word. Yeah, yeah. Animal, <laughs> questionable animal husbandry. I mean, Clark does love those dogs, and he's That's very true. close yes. to those dogs. But I, don't... I relate to Clark um, the most of all characters in that movie. 
Yeah, being unintentionally untrustworthy just by looking kind of weird. I I, I identified (laughs) that too. Yep. Uh, So let's just cut to the chase. A hundred number one hundred and thirty-eight. What the hell's going on here on this list? I don't fucking know, man. I (laughs) I I don't want to oversell it or anything. Not that we haven't already, but um, the the fact that this isn't like in the top ten for me is just blasphemy. So this list, though, I mean, it, it's constantly changing, right? So yes. I wonder if, if five, five years ago when the thing was, like, hot again, was maybe mm. you been, or maybe five years from now, I don't know. Like, Although I feel like the Stranger Things bump should have helped it for the for the kids. Yeah. But yeah. That, that, that stuff, like, bugs me. When the kid has a poster of the thing in his, like, wall, and he's, like, 1985, I'm like, nah, you wouldn't have a thing poster. Like, There's no way. <laughs> historical accuracy damn it i know it's like, the kids also listen to the clash i'm like dude you're like in ohio and like i don't think you're listening to the clash like you're not that cool. you're I'm sorry. nine years old right it's van halen and that's it it's fine right oh, oh absolutely yeah um <clears throat> you know this what's interesting about this uh watching it this time um that i hadn't thought about before because I've ne- I, I've never really sat down and like kind of analyzed this movie, but since we've been doing the show, Amanda, you and I have both kind of discovered we have a similar taste in 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 the way the way we like stories to be told. Yes, and this I think is a masterclass in that in uh in that style in that it is a masterclass in necessary detail. Mm. Yeah, um, I think you it gives you only what you need. Like I, I've watched this movie, I don't know, 25, 30 times in my life. I have no idea what they are researching in Antarctica. <laughs> That's a really good what point. Are, what are these guys doing there? I think it's like smoking gigantic spliffs and watching old game shows and what yeah. they on the, on the human mind. And, and more importantly, does it matter? Like would right. would the movie be improved if they if you knew what they were doing there? No, right? No, no. And I, I think the 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 remake that or sequel slash remake slash prequel that came out a few years ago kind of made the mistake of going a little too far into what they were researching at the the because it takes place in the Norwegian um, outpost, right. and I think I I I'm pretty sure that it kind of deals more with like what they're what they're surveying, what they're doing, that they're taking ice core samples and they're doing this and that. And I don't think it really adds much to the actual story. No, not at all. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, there's actually a TV version of, of John Carpenter's a thing that has a voiceover, which describes each character and what they, they do at the no. research facility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I read like excerpts of it. I was like, what? Like, I, yeah. Yeah. I discovered because I, I think you or somebody else brought that up on the chat while we were mm. watching it the other night, and I have that version on my Blu-ray set. I didn't even realize I had it. Oh my so God. I went back and I watched the first ten minutes of it, and it's so strange because it's uh, there is a just this disembodied voice. It's not a voice from anybody in the movie, and oh. as each character shows up on screen for the first time, it sounds like this voice is just reading the uh uh the stage directions notes, from yeah. the script yeah so it'll be like <laughs> mccready helicopter pilot who's adapted to living in the antarctic oh but he's God. just starting to really feel you know, <laughs> it, and it's just like what the hell is going on windows hates being a radio operator hates being here 
Can't wait to get back to the States. McCready, a top helicopter pilot, worked for Hughes Aircraft as a test pilot until he got into a confrontation with top management and resigned to take this assignment. Giles, a mechanic who went from trade school to the airlines, none better. Gary, a 30-year army man who worked up through the ranks to become an officer, likes the job of station manager. in charge of the dogs, doing a study on the effects of extreme cold on animal behavior. These men were commissioned by the United States National Science Institute to gather data concerning the physical and natural sciences on the continent of Antarctica. So it's, it's even just... worse even worse than the Blade Runner uh, narration. At least they got Harrison Ford to yeah. do that. It's like my only, my only theory is that since it was a since it was on TV, they were like, because uh, the first like 10 minutes of this movie, there's not a lot of dialogue in it. And I have a feeling that whoever was preparing it for TV was like, there's, they don't even say anything for 15 minutes. We need how, people, anybody who's watching this is just going to do something else or change the channel unless we give them something, you know? <laughs> I like to think that the voice is actually the voice of the thing itself. Like, he knows everything <laughs> about everybody. And it's a, he's a really shitty, like, fan fiction writer kind of guy. And it's like, and ruggedly handsome McCready doesn't suspect that I will kill him soon. There Enter is, the thing. there is everybody a... Everybody likes, everybody likes the thing. They, oh, my God. He's the best. Total Mary Sue, yeah. yeah. The thing's the grooviest. The thing knows everything. But he's very clumsy and... <laughs> very endearing. Right. McCready has a secret crush on him. Oh my god. <laughs> there there isn't actually like a really interesting um there's a short story that um a sci-fi writer wrote, I think in like twenty eleven or something, called The Things. And it's mm. the thing from the thing's point of view. Oh really? And it's it's not it's it's much more cerebral. It's this kind of, you know, like it's, it's almost like a thought experiment masquerading as a story, but it's interesting. I, I sure. recommend people check it out if they're really into sort of the fandom of, of this movie. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, still going off of the necessary detail element, there's, there's some things in here that I had never really thought about before stylistically that really go to amplify um, how much you get out of so little. One of those being the constant use of fade outs at the end of scenes, mm. which seems a little bit strange at the beginning of the movie. Cause they do it in some slightly odd places where it's almost like they're cut. They're going to go to commercial, but as the movie goes on and things get more tense and it becomes more about letting people out of your sight, these fade outs allow for uh, missing time between yeah. scenes in order for your mind to kind of go crazy when they come back. Like the, there's a, a really prominent one where um, <clears throat> McCready and Nalls <laughs> go up to McCready's shack and they do a fade out. And when they come back, the next thing you see is Nalls coming back frantically to the, to the, uh, to the station saying he had to cut McCready loose. Cause it was, you know, he right. found his jumper or his underwear right, or whatever. He found, like, burnt and so, clothing. Yeah. Right. And this is all stuff happening in between these scenes that they've faded in and out of, which creates this space where something could have happened that you didn't see. And it's 
it's a really uh, subtle way to to build that tension and amplify the paranoia. I think. I think John Carpenter he gets pigeonholed. People just think of him as a Halloween guy, and even that he's really more about suspense and kind of classic. Oh, definitely. Creepy, yeah. You know, he's not about even though this film is his goriest film in its own way. He's more about like old fashioned techniques of building anxiety and tension and and that yeah that everything you're mentioning right now is so uh masterfully done and so it's almost really eloquent because you don't have to show anything and then when you don't show it i my mind my imagination is speculating like nonstop. i i, I was really impressed actually i kind of caught that too the last few times i watched it i didn't really think of that as a kid as a kid i was all about splitting dogs and you know <laughs> right right and awesome beards but now yeah now i can see yeah, where, where the movie kind of gives your your mind the space to work on itself, like like your own sense of like right. having missed something or, or being uncertain and, and the paranoia that your own mind can generate just by leaving you these little gaps of not knowing exactly what happened and, and how these pieces are all going to connect together necessarily. It, it's really amazingly right. done. And yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Tony. I was going to say, it's, what's really funny, too, is like this film is very excessive in so many other ways, but it knows when to dial back and, and mm-hmm. to just kind of give you just what you need. Like you said, it's a really weird balancing act. It's I don't know a lot of other films that kind of do that. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you look at the information they actually do give you, you know, like I said, they're down at this research place, but you've got no idea what they're actually doing there. But all of the characters who are there are pretty clearly defined in if not their job, um, their kind of state of mind throughout, like you, nobody feels for the most part, nobody feels really, uh, expendable. Uh, Obviously they all are, but it doesn't feel (laughs) like there's anybody there who's just there to be killed because Mm -hmm. they all kind of have their unique way of reacting to the situation, which, you don't need any more information about what they do or why they're there in order for that to make any sense. Right. So they yeah. give you just enough with the characters. But on the other hand, when they do give you more information, it actually works. Um, it works to build the suspense by overloading you because as, uh, uh, as the thing goes on and stuff gets more heated and more paranoid, they start giving you all of this like really fast exposition about stuff that people, the, what their responsibilities are and who could go where. And all it does is just confuses you. Mm. And I don't think, I don't mean that in a bad way because at that point, everybody in the, in the movie is confused about what's going on because I was thinking, and I, and I was going to ask you guys if you could answer this. Cause I don't know if you can, is it even possible to track who's infected when, and does it really matter? Because the chaos is sewn into the situation. So you've got guys spitting out stuff like, oh, only I have the key to this thing. So I guess that means that if I if I did, if it wasn't me, it had to be this guy who I, the doctor who I gave the key to. But it's like even even if it doesn't matter if either one of those guys did it, just the fact that they're speculating all this stuff. I don't think there's a direct line that you could point like, oh, it went here and then it went here and then it went here and then it went here. I think they're just throwing all of this stuff at you like JFK, Oliver Stone style, <laughs> just to kind of like keep you off balance as to who it could possibly be. Cut to Joe Pesci orgy with weird Mozart wigs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, and I think those, those um, 
the, the fade to black and fade out moments that on the first or even second viewing can seem kind of out of place. Like they, they serve that purpose to break up any potential constructing of a, of a real timeline that you can prove mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. like who went where and when and with whom and all this different, like you, the movie makes it impossible for you to do that. And it, it makes you feel like you could do it though. Like if you watched mm-hmm. close enough, you feel like you could put the pieces together but because of the way it's constructed in the end you really can't and i do think part of that is because in the end it doesn't really matter when mccready stabs clark Hmm. like clark's still just a dude Mm -hmm. like there's no oh you mean when when he shoots him you mean when he shoots him i'm sorry um but like when clark dies you don't know if he's infected and when he dies it doesn't like nothing happens it doesn't seem like he was Right, but it's just kind of glossed over. Like the movie just keeps moving because at that point it, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. People are just going crazy. I, I love that choice of sh- he shoots Clark and Clark was just a guy. He made a mistake, but you know, and Childs tries to call him on it. But at the same time, it's like, well, of course he did. I mean, he, he made a move for him like during the heightened situation. Right, what and is he gonna do? What I like what, yeah, exactly. And what I like what you're saying, Amanda, to me is that it puts us with these guys. Like, I like, I don't, I'm really confused. I'm really scared. I'm paranoid. Mm. I don't know what's going on. I, I feel like I could, I could put this together if I just had enough information, but I don't. And what I think about what, what Clay was saying too, about you, you have only enough information. It, it actually parallels the workplace experience in my life where I don't know <laughs> who these people are. I do a job with them. I'm kind right. of irritated by them. There's a weird tension in general. Cause like we have to work together and I want to be here. And these actors really sell that and then as an audience member i feel like i'm just another person on the crew like i think you know i think childs and palmer smoke weed and maybe they're, they're friendly but maybe they just they just weed guys i don't know and you know <laughs> right. it, I, I feel like there's a, a like this and return of the living dead both are like my workplace movies as a kid <laughs> when I, I thought this is what jobs would be like and i was kind of right like it it basically is i don't trust anybody i'm not sure what's going on there's it. that old guy yeah. who's real serious, but he's got a nose ring. And what's that all about? <laughs> he might be a secret Nazi. Who's to say? Right. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I, I did have an old guy who was a, like a, a weird old punk rocker guy when I was a dishwasher. And I found out, I was like, really? You like you're like in the Marines or something. I was like, no, dude. I was in this band called the Lost Daughters of Elvis. And I, I was, I, I thought about like, yeah, old people also used to be cool. And that was, these movies helped me uh, figure that out. Thanks. Yeah. Unfortunately, by the time you really realize that you yourself are also old and no longer cool. So, so true. Um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, and it's, it's so funny. Cause yeah, it's not like this group of guys is, uh, the group of guys from predator who are like, they're all buddies and they've worked with each other all the time. And they're this tight knit group or what, these are just like coworkers who are just down there to do this job. You don't necessarily, like you're saying, get the sense that they're really friends yeah. Uh, you, you might not even know. I don't even know if they they knew each other at all before they all showed up. You know, it feels like Alien kind of the movie Alien. Definitely. In that way where it's like these are just co-workers doing a job and they ended up in this crazy situation. Like, uh, sorry, one more thing. Maybe that I'll, <laughs> I'll throw it back. But I, I was going to say um, the thing with with Childs uh, getting on McCready for shooting Clark, uh, the scene before that or maybe like two scenes before that is the is where uh mccready gets locked out uh and left in the cold Mm. and when he busts back in child says to him 
you would have done the same thing if it was you. Mm. you know? And then so two scenes later, McCready does do something drastic like that. And Childs is the one who was like, I can't believe you just did that. So yeah. it's it's like even th- these guys are all reacting differently and not necessarily consistently. And it's just it's really it feels really real. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I was going to say. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I you should you should go first because I have a sort of unrelated thing I want to bring up. Go ahead. Okay, what I was going to say is that the connective tissue between this and Alien is Dan O'Bannon. So Dan O'Bannon <laughs> wrote Alien, and then, yeah. of course, he, di- he directed Return of the Living Dead, too, but he also made Dark Star of John Carpenter when they are in college mm-hmm. together, and it yeah. keeps falling out. But that was also a bunch of guys stuck doing a job in space. But I think, they're, I think Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter must have had similar ideas about this kind of, like, the drudgery of regular work. And they, I think they're counterculture guys, so, like, it's the end of the seventies and the sixties dream hasn't worked out. And now it's the early eighties and you got to work and you're getting older and you hate everybody and you don't trust anybody. And some of them are becoming really conservative maybe. And that's like a, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a, a real seventies dread, like kind of like uh crystallizes in this movie in the early eighties. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's, it's really interesting. You brought that up, Tony, because um, something I was reading when I was, you know, getting ready to record tonight with you guys was that, um, Toby Hooper was actually mm. attached to this first. And I think Texas oh, really? Chainsaw Massacre has a lot of that sort of like seventies dread kind of sensibility to it. So I, I, yeah. I think that's interesting that you made that connection. Um, I, I feel, feel like there's a couple projects. John Carpenter and Toby Hooper have like switched off and on again. Cause they, they're kind of in the same circle. A lot of, a lot of level a lot of mm. different years. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you think about like the, the, the projects that they must have like kind of, past like ships in the night on like uh, actually uh i just was i was listening to a different podcast about halloween and they mentioned that uh i think it was about halloween if i'm if i'm remembering correctly john carpenter was supposed to do poltergeist mm-hmm. but oh. the i think it was this movie actually the failing of this movie lost him the job on poltergeist oh wow i think i could be making that up i might be misremembering i think but. i've actually heard the same thing but yeah uh, so sorry, Amanda. Yeah, oh, no, what, that, what are you going to say? It's yeah. <laughs> fine. I have just kind of a, a weird, like, real life experience with um, people who have done research in Antarctica. Oh, really? <laughs> so, um, one of my previous jobs was I, I, I worked for uh, a scientist, and I sort of, you know, like did a bunch of admin stuff for him and his lab groups. And a couple of the guys attached to his his lab group, they were they were all like um, geologists and like geochemists. And so there was this one guy. He was probably probably by now he's close to seventy, and he like reminded me of of, a, of he, like he could very easily be a character in this movie. And he mm-hmm. would go every other year. He'd fly down to Antarctica and stay there for six months because I guess oh, like. Getting down there and getting back is a really big thing. And if you're going down to do research, it's a shit ton of money to bring all your equipment and everything. So he was telling me that there are times where, you know, when the weather's bad or when the season changes and you can't really be going down there to do active field work, uh, they just leave like a skeleton crew at at the base, at the camp. Hmm. Because somebody has to stick around and kind of make sure things keep running and, and keep things in decent shape. But it's always like, a, depending on the size of, of, you know, if you're at like one of the smaller outposts or the major one, 
it, it's more or fewer people, but it kind of is interesting. He was describing it and I was like, oh man, that sounds like the thing. And he started laughing and he was like, yeah, when newbies come for the first time, that's the movie we make them watch the first night they're there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's <awesome>. amazing. <laughs> Well, that's a, I would say that's an unspoken thing, though. It's like all these guys, they chose this job. Like, what's wrong with their lives? Why yeah. are they willing to do this? Like, like, could you imagine, though? I guarantee you any other movie goes into that. Right. You know? and, it, and it doesn't. Yeah, I, we start hearing I, about McCready's divorce. Right. Right. Yeah. She was a I, chess prodigy and he hates her, but he's still trying to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just feel like like that stuff is it's so open for you to kind of wonder that, but I don't think any of that information makes the movie any better. Yeah. Right. Um, what I, what I do, what I do like though, is, uh, the, the choosing of Antarctica is, I don't know if you could have picked a better place to set this. The only, cause I was trying to think, I was like, you need something that's, really desolate and really removed it needs to be the frontier essentially and the only frontier that really exists is antarctica or maybe like the desert and then i started thinking actually the thing in the desert would be kind of cool but even even there it's (laughs) like the desert doesn't feel as out there as as the tundra you know yeah Yeah. Uh, though if if you're gonna do a sequel i guess you would have to do like the the star wars tatooine to hoth flip so the second one would have to be somewhere right. really hot, but isolated. Because, yeah, basically with, with the way the creature works, if you put it anywhere else, the movie is like 10 minutes long because it just it spreads so fast. Right, right, yeah. But I, like, It's funny. As I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, the thing in the desert would be kind of cool. And then I thought about that as a title. And I was like, the thing in the desert is a cool <laughs> title. And then I was thinking how funny it would be is if you did a movie called The Thing in the Desert and then halfway through the movie, people realized, oh, this is just – quote unquote the thing in the desert <laughs> well, i'm from arizona and what's funny there's actually a one a roadside attraction called the thing and there's like all these like billboards for it and it's mm-hmm. I, it's like a mummified dog or something it's really terrible yeah. but it's <laughs> when i as a kid seeing the board the, the, like the billboards i'm like oh man it's probably like awesome like you know frozen monster but i was like it's middle of arizona it's you know probably not that <laughs> so you you can make your movie about that. Kids are going to go see that, but it's actually John Carpenter's monster. I mean, yeah, there you go. You get money. Yeah. You get, you're sitting <laughs> on a pile of gold. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I always say about this movie uh, is that I think this is the best H.P. Lovecraft movie that's mm-hmm. ever been made. And mm-hmm. I know, and every time it's like, oh, well, it was based on actually it was based on a story by William Campbell. And it's yeah. like, no, I I, know, I understand. <laughs> But if you're looking at this, this specific thing, this has so much Lovecraft baked into it oh, yeah. that um, in I don't even want to call it off brand because it's only off brand because his name isn't on it. Everything in it is very much Lovecraft where you've got the uh, first of all, Antarctica, like in the Mountains of Madness or at the Mountains of Madness. You've got uh, the alien itself is very uh, reminiscent of Lovecraft monsters, even the way it kind of flares out into these sort of like star-shaped pieces that's yeah. something that's described very often in his books mm. uh the sense of uh paranoia and even even to a certain extent xenophobia um or yeah. just fear of the other and as we were as we were watching this someone pointed out that uh the nor quote-unquote norwegian being spoken at the beginning is actually just gibberish mm. which is funny 
until I thought about it. And I was like, that's actually a really interesting choice because you are, you are then taking this thing. Maybe I'm just like doing uh stealing the English major thing from Amanda here. But <laughs> I was just thinking you've been spending too much time talking to me. Yeah, no, you can, you take this thing, which is, which seems like, Oh, they didn't even bother to get actual Norwegian translation, but it is meant to be something unknown and un, uh, unknown to the characters of the movie. And you are presenting it in a way where it is also unable to be known to the audience who, whoever it is, what is actually being said. So it keeps this, uh, this element of the unknown and reacting to the unknown and the unknown being uh, thrust upon you uh, completely intact because there's not even, there's not really a way for you to relate to anything that's happening or being said up to that point. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Uh, like, I, I like what you said about it being kind of focused on like the fear of the other, mm. because you know the the Norwegians, you know the Norwegian kind of like it escapes from their camp, so it's something that's right. infected the American camp from an outside source. It's not like I, I always kind of wonder what if this movie had started with them finding it at their camp. Like how would that have changed things? Like why, why does it kind of happen the way that it does? Like, why is it this whole exterior setup of, you know, the dog has to run in and the hell other than the fact that it looks really cool. um, Like what, what are the, the, what is the thought process behind that choice? And I wonder if it is kind of going along with that, where it's like this fear of something from the outside infiltrating in secret. I think to build on that, I always thought, you know, a lot of times I feel like infection stories and stuff like that, um, the, people are infected for um, for innocuous reasons or for doing a good deed even. So so, so this actually starts out there, trying, they're, they see this dog being hunted and they're, what's going on? And this guy has a gun. And so they're actually trying to help a random dog and trying to calm some guy with a gun down. And so in the opposite of a Friday the 13th kind of thing, they're not punished. They're, they're actually, they're punished for a good deed. And I, and I feel like there's a few like infection stories or, or disease stories where it is like that, where it's like, oh, you, you're trying to help somebody with their groceries. And then, of course, that's when you get like the terrible super flu or whatever. And I, right. I feel like there's there's a weird element of xenophobia where, at least like in the Lovecraft idea, where it's like, don't help anyone. Don't even talk to anyone <laughs> you don't know because right. you, you think you're doing something good. But guess what? And um, I also you mentioned that it's like the best Lovecraft adaptation. To me, what's funny is um, Carpenter obviously had a, a thing for Lovecraft. Eventually, he did, you know, uh, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, which is, you mm-hmm. know, so, I mean, he's not trying to hide it whatsoever. But, again, him and Dan O'Bannon worked together. Dan O'Bannon did his version of Lovecraft, which became Alien, and and John Carpenter did the thing. And they both have very similar setups to At the Mountain of Madness, where these scientists come and they, they find this thing that's, you know, stuck in the ice, and, of course, all hell breaks loose. So, to me, it's almost like they... They both had um, like one one source material, and they went off in different directions. And I think it's really fascinating what they both came up with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing the thing that I find so interesting about um, about this movie and the way that they set the story up, you know, uh, you, you were saying, uh, um, what what would it be like if they if it was them who found the the creature? Mm-hmm. And that's what they do in the in the remake slash prequel. Right. And it's interesting to me because monsters a lot of times, like you were saying, Tony, 
these things are are the catalyst for these things is an action taken by your uh, group of protagonists, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's usually some sort of punishment for either doing something right or doing something wrong. Um, and th- in this, it's a the monster is explicitly amoral, right? Like you can't you you can read into um friday the 13th about the uh, or any of the slashers if you want to about the how they're they're actually fairly conservative morality tales about why you shouldn't have sex and do do drugs (laughs) and stuff um because those are always viewed as the catalyst for the for the for the monster right right. in this one the thing has no politics there's no politics in the thing other than by when by when i say the thing i mean the monster itself it's just trying to survive. Well, it is a little known fact that John Carpenter hates dogs and that he's trying to work <laughs> into a lot of his films that if you ate a dog, you will f- suffer the consequences. Yes, yes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> did, he, did, he, did he kill a dog in Halloween, actually? Maybe there's something to that shit. Uh, Michael Myers, I believe, eats a dog in Halloween. Oh, oh my God. Well, that, uh, you know what? I guess I think I cracked the yeah, comic code. You might be right. <laughs> you might be onto something. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean, though? Because yeah. it's like it's – Everything is stark in this movie. Even the the it's it's almost. I know John Carpenter is a big fan of John Ford, mm. and it feels it almost feels like a western in its sensibilities. In that it, it is very stark, mm. and there's westerns very often are morality tales, but this has a very uh, uh, bleak uh, wasteland type feel to it that that wouldn't feel out of place in a western. Yeah, I think that's an interesting it, way of like, of, of like an interesting lens to like look at this movie, especially like jumping kind of to the end where you're mm. left with just McCready and Childs and mm. like the, the there's this ambiguous ending where you don't know if either of them is infected. You might like you could read it as Childs is infected and this is some, some sort of like showdown like at the very end between the two of them that we don't get to see. In a way, I, I don't know. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think uh, I think the ending follows right in line with that element of um, you're only getting the detail that you need, and the missing time or the missing pieces aren't ultimately important uh, to the the story that they're telling. Right. Because much like much like the way that uh, you you don't really know what they're researching, and you don't even really know who infected when and and whatnot, that stuff doesn't matter because it is, it is left at, it is left up to you to kind of make the decision for yourself and put the pieces together for yourself. I don't think there's any possible way you could end this other than the way that they do. That would be satisfying. Yeah. The ending is the punchline. It's, it's really a perfect bow to put on this fucked up package. And it, <laughs> it, it feels really earned like um, the mist, um, yeah. which came out, uh, you know, that ending is, is really brutal and, it, and it, it's, you know, different from the book. And I get why they did the ending, but it feels um, compared to this, it feels a little uh, pushed on the, the audience. Right. It feels, it feels a little bit like they're really trying to kind of like, go, get, you know, gotcha. See that. And this is more like inevitable. And that's why it feels right. Perfect. Well, that's, and, that's kind of what I what I mean as far as like how desolate the entire thing is because the ending of this is no less um no less of a downer than the mist but mm-hmm. yeah the mist is so overwrought in its yeah. like 
like you're saying, it's really pushing on you that isn't this horrible, isn't this awful. And the thing just like does what it does. It lets it, it's, it just lets it lay there. And it's just sort of like, this is how it is. Yeah. And I also like um, real quick to go back to um, um, the fact that they, you know, this happened to the Norwegian camp first. I, I love in any film when uh, a horror film, when you see, what the curse or what the bad thing does to somebody else first. It's like a warning sign. They go to that camp, they see these, mm-hmm. these mangled bodies and burning. They're like, what happened here? And you're like, obviously this is going to be you and like within an hour. Like, <laughs> and, and of course people can't heed the warnings. And, you know, at the end of the film, there's fire, the camp is burning down. And it's like, yep, this is, uh, this must've been what must've been like for the Norwegian guys, except for one guy who went out in a helicopter, you know, like, well, you know, what's interesting is, would you say that, having it having the monster happen to them instead of them being the ones that make the monster happen for you know Mm. argument's sake Mm. would you guys say that that ultimately makes the characters um makes you sympathize with them more than you would in say a slasher movie because slasher movies they eventually what happens is they 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 inevitably turn into these things where you're essentially rooting for the killer for the most part mm. there's always the one character who's like oh man that's awesome that she got this guy but you're not going to these movies to see how the girl kills the the bad guy right you know the draw you're to these not. movies is you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm there for Chris, Kristen like, lovers dancing yeah, the, everybody loves Jason. Everybody loves Jason. Wants to see how he's going to kill a bunch of people. Yeah, and so you're not exactly empathizing and feeling scared or worried so much for your characters because they kind of um, antagonize or or uh, not antagonize, but they kind of they kind of they they open the seal so yeah. to speak in some sense. Yeah, it whereas goes- this one. Oh, well, I was just going to say, whereas in this one, since it happens to them and they are completely uh, devoid of any uh, blame or cons or 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 they have no hand in this actually happening, it it feels that much more stressful because you're not waiting for anybody to get a comeuppance or anything. Right. Yeah. It goes. It goes back to what you were saying about um, how a lot of like slashers tend to be morality tales where there's mm. something that the characters or some of the characters have done to kind of bring this fate upon themselves, whether it's drugs or sex or, or whatever. Whereas in the thing, they didn't really do anything to deserve this. Like yeah, they helped the mm. dog, but they didn't like, they were just sort of going about the course of their jobs and their lives. And then this, this all kind of happened to them, mm. um, which I think is an interesting, like, because, you know, Tony, I think you brought up Alien earlier and it kind of got me thinking a lot about the ways in which this movie and Alien are two sides of the same coin and and the things mm. that they do similarly that mirror one another and then the choices that they make that are different. Like, like I think one of the clearest ways they mirror or two of them is is the desolate location, the isolation and then that sort of gradual emergence of the like central hero or protagonist. Right. But the things that they do differently are, you know, the, the crew of the Nostromo makes some choices, <laughs> like whether or right. not those yes. are well-informed yeah. choices, they still, they make certain choices. They actively do certain things, different people make decisions and take actions that leads to their ultimate fate. Whereas in this, everybody's just kind of, doing their normal job 
sort of just existing. And then this all just starts happening around them and to them. And, I and think- there's also, I was just going to say, and there's also politics baked into Alien as well. Not, not not like real world politics, but the the idea that this company wants them to bring back this sample and that right. there's some question about whether or not them going there in the first place was due to the, the, the company they work for sending them that way. So there's that stuff built into it, which Both the thing situation. doesn't have. I was yeah, just the thing thinking the same thing. The Let's talk about the bonus situation. Yes. Man. yes. <laughs> um, well, that's the thing. It's funny. Like um, that's why I think the thing's a little more Lovecraft where it's like the universe is indifferent. This, this force, it's not evil. It just doesn't give a shit about you. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad or whatever. You're just, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's right. That's, there's no Ash who's behind the scenes pulling the strings for the company. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you guys just, you guys got really unlucky. Yeah. Right. Right. Speaking of speaking of uh, of, really of Lovecraft again. I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you guys feel about the alien stuff? Like, because honestly, I uh, w- my uh, experience with Lovecraft, I love his stuff until he gets specific about where everything comes from. So I've actually never even made it through at the Mountains of Madness because he goes so in depth about like alien civilizations and day-to-day life and i don't i do there's, not there's care. like caste systems and shit yeah right? i do it's, not care that's like when like the catholics will go like these are the angels in this section of heaven I'm like what there's like a street right and shit. yeah like, what yeah the hierarchy of of angels and shit like, right they, i don't care about that stuff i don't think it's really well, interesting. you don't want to know who's do. a seraphim and who's not <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like when you're like, well, Peter Parker's uh, mailman was in the first three. I'm like, I don't care. It doesn't matter at all. Like, yeah. So, so is your question with this movie? I, I like the vagueness. In fact, I almost wish they didn't show the spaceship at the beginning. That's what I, I was going to say. Definitely oh. wish they didn't show the spaceship. I think the the weakest part of this movie is is the spaceship stuff. No. I I actually like the scene where um where they're watching the video. Mm-hmm. of the Norwegians finding it. And I like mm-hmm. the scene where they go to find the ship, but I hate the shot at the beginning where you see the, the thing, uh, the, the ship crashing on earth. Yeah. And I hate the friggin' boxcar racer that Blair is building. <laughs> it's just so silly. I don't Wilford really Brimley's mind. ship is. <laughs> yeah. I, I love I, it. I, let Wilford Brimley have his ship. I'm, you, I'm you fine his, with his, that. His rosebud for outer space. I mean, <laughs> that thing rocks. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I guess they no, don't. No, I know. It's, I guess yeah. they don't spend too much focus, put too much focus on it or whatnot. But I just, I love the uh, the unknown element of like they found something in the ice. It's been there for a hundred thousand years, and now it's loose. I'm so much more interested in that than I am about. Oh well, it's an alien, and here's its ship, and I don't know. That's, yeah, that's, that stuff doesn't work. I, I almost feel it was, it was like a note from the studio. Like, hey, um, we probably should tack this just so people get it. You know, it's put yeah. in the spaceship because it feels a little odd. Yeah, I, let, let's kick off that silent first fifteen minutes with something that's really going to grab their attention. Although, it's so I, I always forget that that shot's in there because yeah. in my head <laughs> the opening scene is just the the title that awesome like burning title thing I, so good. I always forget that that comes after the shot of the spaceship flying to earth i also feel like it, even to predator i think the predator spaceship at the beginning is also not needed same i agree 100 because yeah. then predator becomes like from, uh, from dust till dawn situation you know it's like well, <laughs> right, right it's a real like it's a little more of a surprise when you know van damme comes out of the woods and kills you right right yeah i i i, I think part of the reason why 
I like the, uh, maybe not like, maybe tolerate the uh, Wilford Brimley's uh, homemade <laughs> spaceship is because I, I sort of like the idea that this, th- this alien, the thing, it's, it's not like one of the leaders of its society. <laughs> sure. Like it doesn't seem like it has like, the, the, you know, it can build a spaceship and it can imitate anybody, but it somehow can't like finish off this handful of random dudes. <laughs> like that's kind of cool. So it almost like, it's like a, it's like a, it's like one of the guys in the, on the, 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 the station. It's like some worker dude. Yeah. It's like, right. Right. Who just uh, got like left behind. Like there was an accident and, and he's it's like, the Oh shit. Yeah. Of the thing world. It's a reluctant, like, fuck, dude, I just want to get drunk yeah. in my cabin. Like crash on this planet. I gotta years. build my space helicopter and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's really great. I love it. It's a pilot <laughs> versus a pilot, and they're both just lazy and not. They're okay at their jobs, I guess. But yeah, when push comes to yeah, shove, think, they'll, they'll put an effort. I think the thing that that always that always irked me about the spaceship thing, though, is like it's such a classic flying saucer, right? And when you yeah. compare it to the monster that you're dealing with, it's like this amorphous, like blob tentacle thing who's just built this classic 1950s flying saucer that it's just going to climb in and fly away you know it just it just stylistically it <laughs> yeah. doesn't really match I, I definitely get that like design wise it, it, it's funny this thing is you know in a lot of ways it's the anti-geeger it's not sleek or elegant sure. the creature, yeah. but the yeah. ship i would i would dig something looking like organic biomechanically like geeger kind of or something that would yeah. make this thing better yeah. I just even even like even like the alien from Alien. It, it imagine if the alien from Alien was trying to build a <laughs> spaceship, and so that means in your head there's a scene where the alien from Alien climbs into the cockpit of a spaceship, turns the spaceship on, and then just like jets away in a spaceship. It feels <laughs> weird. It doesn't yeah. really fit. Yeah, very much agreed. And also, here's this this is a thought I only had. Uh, I'm 38. Only had this like this year where I was like. If it could turn into anything from countless worlds, why doesn't this grow wings and fly away? And I was like, fuck, the whole movie is just ruined. Like, no, just don't. There's a reason. There's a reason not. It's too know. cold, man. His it's wings will ice up. Totally, right. Yep. Yeah, but that's part of the beauty of this movie is like, it doesn't really open up the possibilities for those sorts of questions. Like, mm. you, the thing transforms into whatever it has most recently touched. Right. Like whatever organic thing it has most recently absorbed is the shape that it then takes. Mm. And it doesn't really like, I, I, I like that you don't see it. Like when you see it get hurt and kind of go into a defensive mode and it just turns into whatever sort of monster it, it can. I feel like that's different than if we saw like one of the dogs transform himself into like Norris or something. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's shocked. It's hurt. It's, it's exactly. It's like, it's in fire flight or fight mode or whatever right right there's not like a moment where you see somebody transmutate from like you know childs into palmer or whatever like it it, there's it doesn't if it had done that it would open up those questions about like well wait a minute if it can just like at will turn into something else why doesn't it just do you know hey i'm also mccready like which one of us is real yeah right it makes one of the things that makes it, I think, work so well is that the its transformations are not easy. They are a right. very physical process. 
that this creature has to go to. It's not like Mystique from the X-Men where I can just like blink and turn into Hugh Jackman. <laughs> no, it's very true because like basically, you know, they didn't do it with the prequel. But if, if they would have made the first uh, John Carpenter's The Thing after T2 happened and the CGI was – you would have mm-hmm. lo- lost so much of – the monstrousness and kind of the weird agonized beauty of all these crazy transformations. And it would yeah. be the smooth, it would just want to be kind of lifeless. And I, th- that's probably a good, a good point to talk about some of the special effects in this, which uh, I think, I mean, would you, do you think I'm out of line saying that this movie has arguably the best practical effects of any horror movie? What do you think, Amanda? I'll let you answer first. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I certainly can't off the top of my head think of one, especially one that's contemporary to the thing. Like, mm. I can't think of one that does it better. So I'd, yeah. have, to, I'd have to say, yeah. I think for, for me, it's just the, the scope of the stuff that they do um, is so impressive. And it's, it's photographed so well that I yeah. think the, uh, this stuff – I don't want to say it's timeless because there are some a little parts that look squishy. Uh, Rob Bottin's <laughs> heads always look a little bit rubbery yeah. for me, but they actually look pretty good in this movie. But yeah, rubbery works in this movie. Yeah, I think overall, this the effects in this movie stand up really well for uh, uh, over time, and that the fact that they all stand up so well, and they had to do much so much crazy shit, and it's not just a matter of like one sequence where they do something cool or one creature that it's like, Oh, the pumpkin head monster. He's cool. But that's like the only thing in that movie or the alien. Oh, the alien's cool. But that's like the only thing in that movie. This is multiple different creatures, all sorts of crazy shit in all different situations, transmuting into different things and heads turning into spiders and shit. And it's just, it's (laughs) so inventive. And, uh, I know Tony, you were saying the other night that uh, Rob Bottin was in a little bit over his head and was having a bit of a breakdown. And I don't blame him because <laughs> this is an incredible task that he pulled off. Yeah. So I, I, I basically, I totally agree. I think this is probably the best example of practical effects. And the reason why I think it gets kind of, um, it's cake and it gets to eat it too. Is Rob Bottin, what he envisioned with this creature, um, it's allowed to not look real and that's okay because it's something you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And, like you said, it's it's in a lot of ways this film only happens in this form because of Alien. Because basically, after seeing uh, John Carpenter watches his old friends, uh, they became kind of enemies. Uh, Dan O'Ban's script turned into Alien. He's like, Alien is amazing. He's like, there's no guy in a rubber suit that's going to beat that creature. That thing looks great. Right. He's like, he's like, I don't want to do a guy in a rubber suit. And he said, Rob Bottin, what 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 do you got for me? And Rob's like you know, what if this thing could be any monster, like any monster? And then eventually they start talking about, oh, yeah, you chop its head off, then the head's alive, and then this. And 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 then and basically not only did Rob Bottin and, and Carpenter had the imagination to think of that, Rob Bottin figured out how to do that. And you mentioned how uh, well the things are lit, and that's mostly Bottin. Rob Bottin was notoriously really sensitive about how his um, creations were lit. And the joke was on, on the set of uh, The Howling and on The Thing was that um, – He'd spend eight hours setting up a shot so you could see nothing he had built and, yeah. and took you know weeks to build because he just wants like a bare he just wants to see like a, you know a little bit of an eyebrow or a gleam of an eye and some fangs and it's like well let's show this thing but um I, so I think the film has basically it has this really nice advantage of it's 
it's a million gags all in one. And like when the, when Norris's head uh, flies off his body and, and like the neck is bursting and it looks like taffy, that looks great because it's not supposed to be a normal human man's head somehow. Right. Being to- it's supposed to be an right. alien kind of transmogrifying. So it's, it really, it gets to, it gets to be weird and dreamlike and it's, it's, it's all the better for it. And what's crazy too is Rob Bottin did this film when he was uh, 21. He finished when he was 22. That's Holy insane. shit. Yeah. He started working at, oh at age 14. I've done nothing a, with my life. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, not to not to divert, but sure. uh, Amanda, the one the thing every time I think about this, it makes me feel like I've wasted my life. Uh, did you know that the Beatles broke up when George Harrison was twenty six? <laughs> like most rock stars hadn't oh died yet. Like, <laughs> yeah, the Beatles broke up when George Harrison was twenty six. Holy shit! Anyway, yep. now well, that you're all feeling terrible about yourselves, yeah. let's talk about Rob Bottin. Yeah, it's well, so, a this the story goes. Um, Rob Bottin, uh, he was age 14. He became an apprentice for Rick Baker, who, uh, of course, did the effects for American World from London. And he's won uh, mm. more Oscars than anybody for special effects. And so at 14, Rob Bottin was his, like, protege. And so by age um, 20, he did the he did the Howling. And then uh, John Carpenter tapped him for the thing. So uh, it was a year of production for Rob Bottin. And uh, Bottin, actually, he gave up his apartment and lived at Universal Studios. He just thought it would be easier. <laughs> and... After a year, after they fil- they were finished, he went into a hospital for exhaustion. And there, it's not confirmed, but there have been multiple people said he actually had a couple ulcers. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. And um, so, the, you know, the show was all his except for um, he was, you know, they, they were behind, they had over budget, behind schedule. And so they had to do one more effect, which was going to be the um, when the, the dog monster kind of, um, when all the dogs in the kennel are, destro- are destroyed. And oh, it, it, yeah. As a, and it's really great. So um, Rob Bottin, basically, he singled that effect out. He's like, I just did a bunch of dog things for the howling. I don't want to do another dog thing. And so he um, he asked Stan Winston, who Stan Winston at the time um, had done a lot of TV work. And he actually was um, nominated for uh, the first special effects Oscar. It was just him and Rick Baker. Rick Baker oh, wow. won for American Werewolf. And he did this terrible uh, Stan Winston did a really bad Andy Kaufman movie about robots that no one liked. How how did how did he get nominated, but not Rob Bottin for the friggin' Howling? It's well, that's another really interesting thing. So um, the thing with the Howling is that that was going to be a Rick Baker uh, movie. He was going to do the effects for it, but he had promised John Landis that if John Landis ever got his shit together and got the money to do American Werewolf because they've been trying to do that for eight years, he'd do that. Well, John Landis uh... got his shit together. Mm. And then, and so Rob, Rick Baker didn't want to do it. He's like, I, I, I promised I, I'd do this movie, and so he's like, my protege, uh, Rob Bottin, I think he's ready. He can, he can do this film. And so Rob Bottin did the Howling effects, but him and Rick Baker, and probably more Rick Baker, really thought of how to do the transformation. And so that's why they're so similar in, in Werewolf and in um, the Howling. And so I, I think a lot of the insider talk was that maybe Bottin didn't exactly deserve the full credit for the effects for that movie. And he gets screwed for the thing too, for another reason, which I'll, I'll go into later. But anyways, real quick. <laughs> so um, he asked Dan Winston, if you would do the, the, the dog thing, which is actually was just, just a hand puppet, but it looks great. But it's, it's just a guy's forearm inside a little listening hand puppet covered in KY. Jelly. Mm, That's mm. crazy. And, Right. And and it's funny is Stan Winston and Rick Baker, who is Rob Bottin's uh, mentor, they kind of had a rivalry, but Rob Bottin, uh, he got Stan Winston to do this for him. That kind of put Stan on the map theatrically. And then James Cameron and Stan Winston, the Terminator. And all of a sudden, Stan Winston is like the number one or number two guy with Rick Baker. And Bottin, 
is sort of like um, the, I'm not going to say indie darling, but this is the one that he's like the special effects guy, special effects guy. This is the one they yeah. all yeah. really respect mm-hmm. and love. And, um, you know, he, he did it when he was 21, 22 years old. And um, it's, it's astonishing. Like he's had a, a crazy career. Um, I, 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 again, the George Harrison thing, I cannot imagine being that young and doing probably the best work of my life. Right. Yeah, yeah, on the one, and, on the one hand, it being a failure. Right. Yeah, on the one He's, hand, uh, it makes me like I feel like I haven't done anything. But on the other hand, it must be so hard when you're that young and you've already hit what what like right. artistically for you probably feels like such a pinnacle, and then you're not getting you're not getting the recognition for it. Orson Welles disease. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, very true. And like you know, there's a, I, I I don't want to go on super super huge tangent, but there's tons of Rob Bottin stories. Him, like he was on the Star Wars set as a 16 year old kid. He's in the Mos Eisley scene. He's one of the. Oh, that's right. I've heard that. He's yes. one of the cantina yeah. players. Like one of the. Yeah, because he's a really tall kid. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I'll say real quick. This is a great stories. Um, he was on set, and you know, him and Rick Baker made a bunch of special effects for the space cantina scene that um, they did a reshoot, and uh, they did that. And so on set, some guy asked him, like, "What do you think of the scene?" And, and Rob Bottin, you know, sixteen years old, was like, "It's kind of silly. All these monsters all together at once. It's just kind of dumb. I think people are going to laugh." And the guy was like, <laughs> "Yeah, I guess you're probably right." And he walked away, and then Rick Baker was like. Hey, uh, what did George want? He's like, who's George? He's like, the director. He's like, that guy's the director? Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah, it was Botine's like, first day on set of any set. That's oh my crazy. God. How, did, uh, how did he get screwed over on the thing? Okay, so this is really weird. I, um, I follow one of the producers of the thing, Stuart Cohen. He has his own blog all about the making of the thing. And so the thing, uh, Rob Botine is credited as special makeup effects by Rob Botine. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time in 82, there was this big um, hubbub about uh, most of, or if not all of Rob Bottin's actual makeup effects are not applied to human beings. Almost all of them are animatronics or puppets. Oh, interesting. And back then they were like, special makeup effects, even their special makeup effects, there are makeup applied to people. So he, you know, we can't give him this credit. And if you do give him this credit, we're going to fine you because it's, it's anti-union. So, oh, wow. um yeah. So Rob, I think Rob's like, you know, I think I should get this credit. I, I, you know, I don't want to fight too much. And John Carpenter and the producers like, screw it, the, whatever the fine is. I forget how much it was, but we'll just we'll take the fine. So they took the fine. They gave him the credit anyways. And there's a rumor that yes, the film didn't do great uh, box office wise, but the real reason why Rob wasn't, I think, even nominated was that they are still pissed about him just saying, screw it, I'll pay the fine, give me the, give me the credit I want. And of course, really? the next year or two, that was fine. They just changed the rules because like so many special effects have become just like weird animatronics and, and not applied to people. Yeah, that's crazy. That's pretty weird, right? Like, Yeah. It just seems like now, in, um, in so many ways, this like movie was very much ahead of its time mm-hmm. and that it took the rest of like Hollywood and then, and then the audience like extra time to kind of catch up to like get to the level that they were all already at. And I don't know about you, Amanda or Clay, like I, I love that romantic, um, you know, tortured artist story. I love reading that and hearing about that, but I can't imagine how frustrating it must be for, for the guys. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Like no. Carpenter and, and, and Botine and everybody else. I just can't imagine how like, it's just got to really hurt deep down. And you're like, I did my, I really did my best. Like this, this is the best I can do. And, you guys, I, I, and especially it's got to be so bitter in like 10, 15 years and everyone's like, oh man, that was, that was brilliant. And you're like, fuck you, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, where were you? Yeah. 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 Um, what, ha- what happened to Rob Bottin? Cause he, the, the last, I feel like he kind of 
stopped doing stuff after, or at least as super prominently after Total Recall. Um, the last thing that I I remember seeing him do, and I only I only know it's him because his stuff has a very specific look to it, is uh, Starship Troopers, right? I I'm actually I don't. I'm not positive. Did he not do Starship Troopers? He might have. He definitely worked with Paul Verhoeven on RoboCop and Total Recall, so it makes sense. But I know the last thing he, big one that I remember is, is Fight Club. And right. So, yeah, and it's funny. Um, he he's you know he's what's really cool about his style is that it is very stylized, so you can tell his monsters, and they don't really like Rick Baker. His mentor is more realistic. You know, we're talking about werewolves and ghouls and aliens. It looks closer to like what you would imagine the real anatomy or whatever it would be, and Robotine's mm. more more uh, fantastical. But as he mm. evolved, of Fight Club, he did Seven and he did Fight Club. Um, you know, when he does like a uh, uh, who's a Thirty Seconds from Mars guy, um, uh, Jared, uh, Jared Jared Leto. Leto. <laughs> yeah, when Jared Leto's face gets demolished in Fight Club, that looks oh. very real. It looks and looks rough. It does, yeah, yeah. And and like in Seven, he did that. Um, there's a bunch of Polaroids of the guy who I think he dies of the, the sin of famine or not famine on um, the sin of, um, Oh yes. Yeah. He, he, he wastes away. And uh, Rob Bottin, like studied a bunch of like, you know, real like people who die of starvation and corpse photos. And he took the Polaroids himself and it's really disturbing stuff. That's it's funny. It's only shown on Polaroid on a film, but um, anyways, uh, Rob Bottin, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, which is uh, heavily inspired by his career is that, no one knows where he is. And it's really weird. Like, so basically um, when, when CGI kind of takes over and then like the early two thousands, these practical effects guys are getting less and less jobs. And a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll um, you know, pitch for a movie and then last minute they go, we're just going to go CGI. It's cheaper. And sorry. And you know, they're, they're out money they put in for um, their test uh, uh, effects and whatnot. So Rob Bottin, I think um, basically said, uh, I can see where this is going. I'm going to be out. And, there are rumors that he, um, one rumor is that he sells real estate in, in the Midwest. And he's very happy. He's fine. He doesn't really want the spotlight. There's another rumor that he actually did the effects for the Joffrey death in Game of Thrones for free. He came on set and did that. Really? And yeah. That's it's a rumor from a couple of different places. Can't confirm it. And there's some other rumors that, you know, he's, you know, he's happy and content, but he, he doesn't want to work anymore. And of course, you know, his mentor, Rick Baker just retired a couple of years ago and, and Rick Baker said the same thing. I was I was tired of you know not getting jobs I I wanted, and also just like people, you know, like the thing sequel prequel they they CGI effect on top of the practical effects after the fact. Yeah. And so I think Rob Bottin just didn't want any part of that. And real quick, there's a really funny story. Um, uh, I think his name is Steve Johnson. He's the guy who did the effects on Ghostbusters and um, Big Trouble in Little China, and he's the guy who worked for Rob Bottin and Rick Baker. He wrote a book called Rubberhead. It's a tell-all book, and um, he talks about making working on the Howling. And this is back in 1980. And Rob like his boss. Then you know he's only 20, and then this guy's probably the same age. And they're in the garage, and Rob Bottin's getting him drunk. Rob Bottin's <laughs> saying how he just came back from a, a kind of a, a show-all seminar where they showed him a bunch of uh, computer-generated images, and they showed him how they can make spaceships with them. And he was uh, telling this guy Steve Johnson like, "We're going to be out of a job in 10 years." And the guy's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like. You know, they used to get um, ice from frozen parts of the mountain and bring it all the way back down to town, and you chip off the ice, and that would be the ice people use in their houses. It's like then they, you know, they made freezers. He's like, mm. he's like, we're the, we're the iceberg. We're the thing you drag back to the mountain. Like, there's no need for us. And so right. it sounds like both team might have seen seen the wave uh, cresting a little sooner than anyone else. 
Interesting. Yeah. And I just, I looked it up quickly. looks like Kevin Yeager actually did the special effects on Starship Troopers, but yeah. it looks, it looks a lot like Botine stuff, but I'm not going to split hairs over that. But <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's a really interesting guy. Um, he seems to be, he's this weird phantom of the, uh, of the special effects world. Cause he was doing amazing stuff for the 10 years and up. Uh, most of his most memorable stuff is in the eighties. And then he did some stuff in the nineties and then he just sort of disappeared. And, uh, it's, I'm always surprised when you don't hear him talked about, uh, the way people talk about Stan Winston or, or Rick Baker. Yeah. And, and it's, I, I've done, you know, my research, I've talked to some people who do, uh, work still in the industry and I've, I've read a bunch and it's, he's definitely kind of held to us. He's, he's a sexy rock star one. He's the one who's sure, sure. you know, he's like the doors. If you know, most people hate the doors, but they did like five, six <laughs> albums and they, you know, they're gone and that the story is done and people kind of like that. There's a weird ending to this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Stan Winston's sort of like the Stan Lee kind of figure where people are like, he's a good businessman, but he kind of, he, it's more like the guys he had under him doing most of the work. Whereas mm. Botine and Rick Baker really thought of like, they did, they did their best stuff themselves. Like they were a real artist. It's, yeah. it's interesting. That's an inter- interesting world to, uh, to, to dive into. It's cool that you decided to do a comic about that. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's something I always, always thought about when I read Fangoria magazine. Like these guys looked really young, and they all looked like they, they listened to like Pantera and had really <laughs> shitty mustaches. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I'm almost there. My mustache is pretty shitty. I think Pantera is a little hard, but I'll, I'll try. I'll get there. Yeah, and so it seemed, it seemed attainable. It's like, uh, you know, I'm a big comic book guy, so it's like when I saw Extreme Studio stuff of Rob Liefeld stuff in the '90s, and everyone had like sure, acne sure. and and bad mullets. I'm like, dude, in three years, I can draw like as bad as like Rob Liefeld's brigade or whatever. Like I'm there, dude. It's like, wait. Yeah. That was the stuff that made me go, Oh man, I'd love to be a comic book artist. And then the ass fell out of the, uh, <laughs> the entire industry. So oh, exactly. not, not, yeah. not, uh, I'm, I'm not buying Ferraris off of royalties off of Savage Dragon at, or at any time <laughs> soon. But. That's a, all my, all my things I love to do the industry falls apart before I, yeah, know. I know. Right. It's yeah. Um, just to, to kind of wind it down. Uh, I want to talk about the music a little bit. Um, bum, bum. yeah, bum, it's, bum. we, we, we mentioned it at the start, but it's, it's really interesting that they hired Ennio Morricone, this famous, uh, highly, highly regarded, uh, uh, composer to do the music for this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, basically just a classy john carpenter score it blew my and, mind to discover that yeah. i i did not realize that until i was we were going into it this time and i was just like what and what? and what makes it even harder to to wrap your mind around is john carpenter actually did music for it as well there are uh, mm. certain oh. certain places where they needed like just a couple a couple uh uh ba- basically filler music and so John Carpenter comes in and does his John Carpenter thing in a few places. So you end up with this mix of high class John Carpenter via Ennio Morricone and the, you know, uh, the straight, the straight stuff, no chaser <laughs> from, from John Carpenter and his synthesizer. So it's, it's, I, th- I think the score to the thing is one of the best horror scores that, that has been written. Yeah, it definitely I agree. It works. Yeah, it just like 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 it just purely works for like what is going on visually in in that movie. It's like mm. I can't really 
imagine any of that film happening with a more like traditional horror movie score. You know what I mean? Did you guys see Hateful Eight? Yes. yes. Because they, they use some of the thing music in it and some of the unused thing music that Morricone had written. Oh, do they really? I guess That's I didn't cool. pick that out specifically. Yeah. That it, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There's a, I know the musical cue when they, this in the thing, when they discover the um, Norwegian camp, the, the frozen cutout where the body of the monster must've been like a, uh, thought out or whatever. There's a mm. weird, uh, it sounds like the closest to real Morricone stuff where you sort of hear like uh, some strings going, I can't do it, but they, they sound kind of, uh, <laughs> they sound just like that. But anyways, uh, yeah. that's directly in Hateful Eight. The and um, I, I think that, uh, it's funny, I think the music is great, but in the realm of John Carpenter's scores, it's like mid-level for me. Sure. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. He has yeah. so many like super iconic, like, like I can listen to Assault and Precinct 13's main theme, like on a loop for three days and be fine. Yeah, be um, fine. It's, Are you I, sure? I, <laughs> well, <laughs> you uh, you got me there on that one. <laughs> I always wonder what the process must have been like for Carpenter working with Morricone, because if it were me, based on what they ended up with, and if it were me, I feel like the whole time I'd be thinking, "Why didn't I just do this myself?" Right. right, like because you're, you're you're hiring you're hiring someone who's who's like just this amazing composer, and what you end up getting him to do is is sort of, a, like I said, a classy version of what you do, and trying to direct Ennio Morricone into the John Carpenter universe seems like more effort than it might have been worth it, it, when you could have just yeah. done the whole thing yourself. Potentially I more imagine- budget too. Right, right. I, I imagine him walking to like his uh, studio, and you know, Morricone's got a bunch of orchestra people. He's like, "No, come here, come here, come here. This is a chord. Come here. This is a synthesizer. Yeah, Just hit yeah. these three notes. That's yeah. that's great. That's great. You're doing. We your- can't we can't pay for an orchestra, but you don't need one because I've got this keyboard <laughs> and it makes a lot of weird noises. So just play with this for a while. But it is interesting, um, like talking about Morricone and like how we. I think Clay, you had brought up how there are like shades of a western. Over this, and I wonder if there's something like, like, because he he did the scores for so many of like the big, like westerns. I wonder if like yeah, if yeah. you listen like if there are kind of undertones to that. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because what you know, Tony, you brought up uh, Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. and hate. I've always thought that the soundtrack to Hateful Eight sounds like what Ennio Morricone's soundtrack to the thing would have been if they just said, "Go do your thing." Well, you know, it, like it's, it it's is, got the, yeah, it's got the same kind of because they're similar movies to a certain extent, yeah, and it's got the same kind. They both have the, very much the same kind of vibe, especially the openings and stuff. Yeah. But the Hateful Eight soundtrack is much more classic Morricone than the thing is, and they're both basically what unites those films uh, just thematically is they're Agatha Christie. They're um, you know, yeah, they're the it, it, and that's such and a, then there were none. Exactly. Right, right. It, that that's such a that story almost can't fail. It's always a little, a little interestingly, you know. And I think that Tarantino did that on purpose. And of course, Kurt Russell being in both, I think, wasn't a mistake. I of think. course, of course, yeah. And he he plays a very different role in it. But um, I was going to say real quick, um, Amanda, you touched on this. And I I thought this a lot. What, what I love about so for me, the the Alien and the Thing are are very sister films. And of course, the monsters are very different. 
and then the main <laughs> protagonist. Oh, I'm sim- sorry. I, what? I thought you said the monsters. I thought you were going to make like this monsters and oh. Adam family comparison. Oh. I was like, no, the monsters are very different to the Adam family. I'm interested to see where this goes, but they're also very similar. When I moved, when I moved to New England, everyone called me out in the way I said monsters. It says, I should say monsters, I guess, but I don't know. I mean, you guys are wrong. You guys say things all fucked up. I don't know. That's but anyways, um, <laughs> uh, the monster. No. So the, the main characters, what's funny to me is like, so of course you have one main character who kind of, rises up and, and it starts trying to get things together but like mccready mm-hmm. is super reluctant and ripley is she's all for it, but everyone's sexist and won't listen to her basically yeah right, and, right. and it's such a funny difference because like mccready it's like you know i think he could have t- taken charge a little earlier because the guys kind of respect them in a way it seems like but oh yeah he get, yeah he just doesn't want to do it he's so like as a kid i was like that's right dude i could do anything but i'm not gonna <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like it's it's so not how life works usually. The mark of a truly cool guy is that he can yeah, do really, it, but he doesn't want to. I I really I think you know I love like Pearl Jam. I was like, yeah, reluctance is a virtue. And now as I'm older, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what? No, I mean, having cool hair rules, but that's unabashedly <laughs> that's true. But like, you well, know. Yeah. you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I don't know if we want to want to open this can of worms an hour and a 18 minutes into our show, but <laughs> Uh-oh. this movie, as we mentioned at the top has no women in it. Mm. And yeah. I, I think it's, I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I don't see that as um, a failing because I think the story they're telling is so heavily dependent on uh, masculinity, butting heads that it makes sense that you have all of these different male characters who are in the situation, just all kind of all of their toxic masculinity going back and forth kind of is part of what the story is built on. Yeah, I, I can, I can definitely see that. And I, and I think there's a probably like a period accuracy over the fact that there aren't sure. a lot of women sure. kind of taking these jobs and like, it, it doesn't seem like the sort of environment where they were like very progressive and all about like, yeah, we're going to have right, gender right. equality in this workplace in 1982 in Antarctica. Like, yeah, I, I mean, let's be honest. If, if they put a woman in it, it was probably going to be like Vasquez from aliens or something, you know? Or, right. Right. She's going to be extremely really masculine. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I kind of think two things. First thing is like Kurt Russell in 1982 doesn't need a woman in his film. He is breathtakingly beautiful. That's true. That's like, a good point. Yeah. Anyone else, this would be a distraction. It, this, I mean, what else do you need? But the second thing actually is, um, you guys ever see the the scent from like uh, 2003 or so? It's a bunch of women who go inside a cave. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, I love it. And to me, my first thought so when I thought, saw that, because it, it's, it's an all-woman cast, I was like, oh, yeah. cool, this is like a nice counter to the thing. And Right, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I think, I think the descent was probably more... Um, intentional i think the thing was intentional too but i can't be certain but intentionally like when you only have one gender represented you kind of you think there's a reason for it so you start thinking what are, what are the dynamics here so mm. I, I i think the thing was intentional but even if it isn't it becomes it becomes text so i am thinking about like yeah these guys being toxic and of course the, the very end it feels like two men who if they could just communicate none of you know this might not happen or you know it, there's a there's a little bit of that in there, and I I think that if you had a woman in there, it, it could work, but it would be different. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I think no matter which way you look at it, you kind of run up against this interesting um, like stereotyping of 
well, oh, if there was a woman there, like, or, or, or women there, they would get, you know, they would get everybody to work together and there would be communication. It's, and it's like, mm. maybe, maybe not. But that that, that is sort right. of the, the role that women typically play in these kind of movies, especially back in like the 70s and the 80s. That is what you would expect of like female characters, which is, I think, not to go too far into Alien, part of what's so interesting about Alien, where like, Ripley sort of wants people to work together and, and she she kind of wants to take charge but then um, I'm blanking on the other woman on the crew's name yeah I, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about but she has none of that right. she's yeah. not like right yeah it, it's like one of the most you're equitable right. you, you, portrayals and even the descent, though it's like it's not like they work they everything worked out great for them no there, right. there was no communication <laughs> yeah very good point and it's also when they eventually, when they did the remake slash prequel, they did add at least one woman. I don't remember if there's more than one. Yeah, the main uh, character is but, a woman, right? Yeah. But they, from what I remember, they ended up doing it in like the worst possible way where it yeah. then turned into like, it's the girl and the guy she kind of likes or something or yeah. are two of the last ones. And it, it just has that whole dynamic to it. That's like, I know this is not. This is not what we meant when we said it should be a right, woman in right, story. exactly, exactly, yeah, and like, like what I was kind of getting at a little bit earlier, probably poorly, is that like, yeah, it does feel intentional that this is all men, but it, it doesn't feel like it's intentionally excluding women. It feels more right. like it's intentionally focusing on the men, like sure, sure, and that sort of attitude and that like, yeah, we're like out in this wilderness and we're like rough and tumble guys who don't need luxuries and, and nice things. And it's, it's yeah. not like actively act like working to say like women are dumb and we don't need them. It's more just like, but what happens when you put all of these guys in this place alone together and have this happen? Dogs right. Die. And it's, Aww. and it's not, yeah, dog, uh, more <laughs> dog, a lot of probably more dog deaths in a movie I've seen in a while, but yes. Um, yeah. And, and the portrayal of the male of the men in this movie, it's not like, it's not a bunch of of it, it's not like a western in that way where it's not a bunch of john waynes together mm. right <laughs> they are all none of them are really heroic or or um in the traditional sense of of being that way it's like even uh, i would say the 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 person with the most uh machismo in the movie is probably childs and even he is not exactly chomping at the bit to 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 go after this thing you know everybody's right nobody in the movie is really portrayed as someone who has it together or someone who is like, they're not Arnold Schwarzenegger and predator. It's, it is a very interesting and multifaceted portrayal of a, of a bunch of uh, men in this situation, all reacting negatively. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, just to, to wrap it up, we mentioned this at the beginning. I, I wanted to, to, to look at this from a couple angles uh, for one for, I guess both speculative, um placement on the list i think we i think we all agree this should be a lot higher than 138 yeah yeah, yeah. a little bit so we could probably skate past that uh, so the the last thing i was thinking why do you think this movie didn't land when it came out like what what is it is it is it this hangover of 70s dread when we're two years into the 80s and 
and ET is coming out. So things are starting to, people want a little bit more positivity in their movies or whatnot. Like, is it, was it just a, a perfect storm of climate, uh, world climate versus it plus the kind of movies that people were into at the time? Like, why didn't, why didn't this land the way that alien did two years before? What do you got, Amanda? Uh, you know, I, I think, I think there are probably quite a few reasons, partially, I'm sure what Clay was bringing up earlier, where there was, there were just so many movies that were like heavy hitters that came out around this time. But also, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt a lot of heavy hitters that didn't do well. (laughs) There's a lot of, a lot of cult classics came out in this area, which is also really interesting, but continue. Sorry. That is interesting. Um, I, I think one 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 thing out of several that I am kind of focused on because it's something something I've been talking about it a lot in school lately. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> about how American? Huh? Is the Babadook directly responsible for this? <laughs> the the Babadook. All right, Tony. The background of that is I just finished Thank a you. class this summer and I wrote my final paper on the Babadook. Great film. I love it. It was it was wonderful. Clay, I got an A. So there. Yes. <laughs> the um, Babadook is, is, is great. Hmm? He's a gay icon now. Um, oh, yeah. Parent, he, he means a lot to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, in, in a way, the Babadook does kind of fall into this this pattern, especially since the Babadook's an Australian film. Um, but I mean, I've been thinking a lot about how like American audiences don't love endings that are not happy and they mm-hmm. really don't love endings that are ambiguous people love mm. like a strong ending or closure or something definite that tells them this is what happened this is what you watched and this is why and this is where it ends and now it is finished like that's a very american yeah. like that that need to have a specific ending and and to have a, a really really clearly delineated stopping point especially one that gives you some sort of like positive feeling or, 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 you know, a a little bit of glimmer of hope or like something to kind of uplift you at the end. And this movie really refuses to do that. Like it it refuses Mm. to make that decision for you. It refuses to sort of pigeonhole the storyline into this like, oh yeah, McCready and Childs ended up both being fine. And oh, look, a rescue helicopter is coming to get Mm. them and everybody's going to be saved. And it's great. Like, it makes you sit with that feeling of, you know, something awful just happened and then these guys are going to die here and nobody's really going to know what they went through. And that's like a big downer when you think about it. And I think audiences just don't really, they don't gravitate towards that a lot. I, I think yeah. you said everything I was thinking. Uh, I, I feel that ending, which is basically the heart of the movie is exactly why it, didn't connect initially and maybe it's it's a difference between it and alien in a lot of ways alien is very nihilistic and dark but at the very end you know ripley gets out of there and she's okay exactly. and she'll, right. she'll, she'll probably be picked up and you know and there's that that little glimmer of hope like you said and even the cat I, I makes like, it out even, yeah right <laughs> the cat lives and the thing the dog dies over and over again but also maybe that's it maybe it's just because they kill so many dogs they kill so many dogs <laughs> Like, like imagine if an alien before anybody on the ship died, they just cats. 
Yeah, they just threw like 14 cats into space. <laughs> like, t- turns out in space you just eat cats. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, here's another thing too. This, I think this is, I think this is maybe, this is exaggerated. But in my mind, I do wonder if like, if is part of the reason why America doesn't like ambiguity and, and, uh, not winning Vietnam. I I, I mean, it could mm. just be common sense. It could just be like, hey, people in general like when you things uh, have a good ending. It just seems like a positive, normal thing. But I, I kind of wonder. This happened in '82. You know, like obviously John Carpenter. I think his generation. He was still reeling from the malaise of this unending, needless war kind of thing. And I I just, I just wonder if like you go to the movies for escapism. That's right. if America. That's what that. Like my sister, for instance. Any film that uh, has uh, a downer ending or ambiguity, she's like, "Why did I pay for that? I have that right, in real right. life." And I, and to me, I'm like, "Well, I don't go to a film just for escapism. I enjoy escapism, but there's other." And to her, I can't really argue because, like, she, for her, no, her, I want to see the guy win. And yeah. I, right. I just wonder if that's what it was. And of course, you know, the, there is the storm of ET, and so ET is quite the opposite. ET is, is space Jesus, and he's gonna right. He's gonna do everything loved right. It. Right. And so, I mean, I think those are, I think the ending being a downer and E.T., I think you're right. Uh, but it's funny, a lot of these films, like Blade Runner is another kind of downer, downer ending. Um, and after the after these films, you know, like Flight Club is another film where, like, it was a bomb. But now, you know, on DVD, people love it. A lot of people for wrong reasons, but they love it. And it had a downer <laughs> ending. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, you said um, that the thing is is very ahead of its time. I feel like E.T. was what people in 1982 thought the world was like. Mm. And we have now learned from the, <laughs> the time in which we are currently living that the thing is actually what the world is like. Yeah. I, I nobody, would, I nobody trusts anybody anymore. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen when this is all over. I'm going to hide this when I'm done saying it. What you got to do is the sequel where it's uh, E-T-T, the extra thing or whatever. And so it's basically you find that E.T. left a disease. He left a terrible virus and it's the pandemic. And now Elliot's all messed up and is, you know, it's that. Well, what would be great? I don't know if you guys have seen uh, on on Shudder. There's this amazing new, uh, I guess technically you'd call it a short film. It's about an hour long. It's called Host. Hmm. And it's a... uh, they shot it in 12 weeks during the pandemic uh, in quarantine. Oh, and wow. it is a ghost story presented as a Zoom meeting. <laughs> so there's, there's six six girls who all get together and do the seance and the seance goes wrong and the, the ghost oh, comes out God. and stuff. Very, it's really awesome. I highly, highly recommend That's it. Fun. It's, it's like it's the, next, it's the next piece, I think, in the Blair Witch to paranormal activity kind of like step. Footage, kinda. yeah it's the same kind of thing it's got a great gimmick it's very timely um but i was thinking they should just do a remake of the thing but it, they should do it entirely through facebook memes so like <laughs> as they, there's this there's this uh uh someone starts talking about this alien that's come to earth and then people stop trusting each other depending on what they're putting on facebook and how their memes are being received and then everybody's kind of like a hybrid of a invasion of the body snatchers too yeah exactly yeah so basically yeah all of these downer ending sci-fi movies are just like that's the thing is i think people are <laughs> are kind of turning off to dystopian sci-fi stuff because they're like wow yeah everybody was just right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Remember, like, like six or seven years ago, when post-apocalyptic like fiction and movies had a huge moment. Yeah, 
Right. And now it's not fun anymore. Yeah. Right, right. Right. It's not escapism. It's not fun. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, do you guys have anything else you'd like to say before we. I think we're going to uh, end it on a, on a, on on a that high note. Yes. Yeah. Just, uh, just like the movie itself, we're going to go out on a downer. How will we go on? Maybe we shouldn't. Um, uh, we got some bourbon. Just hide behind the yeah. snowdrift. We'll be fine. Yeah. Until we both die. <laughs> anyway, Bye, everybody. Um, that's going to do it for the thing. We're actually, we've, we've reached it. Uh, uh, we've reached our milestone, I believe 20th episode will be Holy our shit. next episode, which means we are uh, doing a wild card. And Amanda, it is your pick. Have you decided what you'd like to do? I have decided. I think I'm pretty sure I, I, I know that you like this one. I think you're going to be happy with this choice. I, I don't just again, you don't have to pick movies. You think I'm going to like, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, and I, and I am not, but I am. Though I do you... control the edit. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just, I like keeping you in suspense of what time I'm going to pick. I am the pretty thing that lives in the house. Yes. Yes. Because I am going to make you last... rewatch that. And I know you. Yeah. Have. I mean, unless the show just happens to end before yeah. we get to that one. <laughs> That's but... when I pick it. And you're like, well, this was our last episode. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what do you got for us? Uh, I want to do the autopsy of Jane Doe. Ooh, cool. okay. Right on. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I, I saw that uh, a couple years ago. I, I enjoyed that. I, I'd be, that'd be, that'll be a fun one to go back to. All right. Very cool. Uh, but yeah, that's going to do it for us. Uh, Tony, uh, where can people find your comic or your work in general if they'd like to check out Serious Creatures or some of your uh, books that you've written? Uh, thanks. Uh, you can find it at TonyMcMillan.com or on Instagram under Tony McMillan or Facebook also under Tony McMillan. No one has my name, apparently. It's great. Um, <laughs> all my stuff's there. I have a, a, a novel called An Augmented Fourth, which is actually um, like Black Sabbath meets The Thing. It's very indebted to The Thing. So if you're into The Thing, you might want to check that, that novel as well. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for being uh, with us. Thank yeah, you. we'll have Congrats to. Congrats we'll, on 20 episodes. That's amazing. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks so much. We'll have to have you back the next time we do a Rob Botine movie. I'm down. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys for checking out the show. Uh, if you'd like to check out other shows that we might have under our umbrella, we have the Penske File podcast where Wes and I talk about Star Trek. We're currently doing uh, double duty with Star Trek Enterprise and the new Lower Decks cartoon that's just come out. Um, we've also got the bat ass podcast where myself and, uh, DC comics artist, Sean Murphy talk about Batman, the animated series. And there's a host of other bits and pieces of shows that we've done here and there that, uh, we, we got a lot of stuff is what I'm saying. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> if you'd like this, feel free to check that stuff out. It'd be much appreciated. And, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks guys. Bye everybody. Hey everyone. If you want to check out Tony's comic, serious creatures, he is currently, as of the premiere of this episode, running a Kickstarter campaign to help fund the publishing of the first collected edition, which I think is the first six issues or so, uh, all in one book. So head over to kickstarter.com and search for Serious Creatures by Tony McMillan. And if you like what you see, maybe throw him a couple dollars. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.